So, first off, Joe, I would like to congratulate you for actually going there to get the sutta. <laughs> well, it's that, really nice that it's all available online. So yes, right. You know. Well, um, there, there. Oh, I want to talk about a topic, and that is, is that there is. Um, there is a Western Buddhism that seems much more based upon the translations into English and what people have made of it in the sense of much of Western Buddhism is scholarship. Mm -hmm. But there was some foundational errors that were made in that original translations. Okay. That uh, because I have been in Thailand for a long time and been exposed to the Thai translations as well as Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa, my teacher was quite into the retranslations and whatnot like that. So the issue of how the Pali is translated has been a big deal for centuries in Thailand, mm. to where it's not even yet an issue in in a, in the US because they don't understand how badly the translations have been because everybody is lazy in the sense that they're using the same lexicons that in fact what i think would be a very good idea is to have every script and every translation that we have of the Pali, like in Sinhalese or in the Burmese script or in the uh, uh, the Vietnamese script and that that kind of thing, all the various scripts, uh, as well as then the translation into that local language. And then from that local language, from that local language into English so that we can have all of these various translations back into the English so that we could compare them. That would take quite a database and that would be useful and valuable because all I really have is things that I know of uh, a little bit from the Sri Lankan, but most of it is uh, obviously English besides the Thai. And what I have found from the Thai is, is that there is some words in English that have been translated spectacularly backwards and okay. wrong and things like that. And that uh, basically the question, and we'll, we'll get to it in detail in a moment, but basically the question is, how should we translate these Pali words like jati and bhava? Because clearly the translations that are translated were done from a very Christianized point of view. And I also just find it confusing whenever authors try to explain those terms, too. I mean, I've been reading explanations of those words for a long time from various authors, and it never really, especially Bhava, like it never really does anything for me. You know, I'm just well, as lost. But. The old the old Tonkas that have the uh, Petitu Samupada um, in in a big circle and whatnot, they always show uh, the uh, an image of a pregnant woman uh, as Baba, mm -hmm. giving people the idea that that's what they're actually talking about. What you see is what you get, rather than uh, what they what it, that means is is process. Mm like the process of becoming something, all right? Like what is the birth of a pianist? What is the process that that pianist goes through? What stage in his piano practice 
would he or anyone else considered him a pianist? When in fact, we all know that the pianist is the one who drinks the most beer. <laughs> but never mind my old jokes. Let's go to the point of what is the process then of the practicing of the piano that be, that makes a pianist become a pianist rather than just a kid practicing the piano? What makes a person a pianist from being somebody that just plays the piano? Well, the answer is that it's a process. There's no particular point in time. Right, okay. There's no okay. particular point in time. It's a becoming, it's a process, it's a not an event. Yeah, that's true. That makes sense. All right. Now, now, here's the whole point in this, if we can get to it just right, right quickly. Most of Western thinking is event-oriented. Okay. Okay. The pianist is not a pianist until he does a recital. Okay. You've got to graduate from high school and get a diploma. Otherwise, high school means nothing. Correct. Right. Okay. That's the whole idea is, is that our, uh, uh, it's all, uh, you could go so far as it's, a, it's the bottom line oriented stuff. And the West say, oh, well, no, we're going to be top line oriented. No, the whole point is you got to read all four pages. Right. Okay. Right. That it's all process oriented. This is what the word bhava is actually meaning. And it's a verb uh used in the poly so you hear uh uh many different uses of it uh it also has the quality of development in the sense of developing a skill hmm. so in the in the thai uh there is a place here called a deepaboan which is that baba which is uh and what that means is the development of light and they're talking about the development of the light within you. Hmm. Okay, so this is how that word bhava is to be used. But okay. before we go much deeper into it, let's back up from the very beginning. So read me the first line or two, the first sentence of the part that you started reading to me before. Okay, it's uh, being so full of favoring and opposing when they experience any kind of feeling, pleasant, Stop. unpleasant, or neutral. Okay. Stop. Okay. All right. So what that means is, is that we're being disposed of feelings. Basically, what that means is, is that at this particular point in the talk, the Buddha is stepping in right in the in the dab smack middle of Paticca Samuppada. And that the, the, the basic part of that is, is that uh, before that process happens, something impacts us strong enough to raise a feeling. If it doesn't impact us, pasa, if that contact doesn't happen, then no feeling much arises. That means then that when the English is translating that third kind of feeling as a neutral feeling, that means that the translators don't know what they're talking about because the actual Pali doesn't say that at all. What the Pali says, if you go into it, is... Um, uh, either dukkha sukha vedana or a dukkha a sukha vedana. 
Those things okay. do not cancel each other out. Please do not take Buddhist formulas and rearrange them uh, like you do in an algebraic equation. Okay, so it's dukkha, asukha, and vedana. But vedana right. is feel isn't that feeling? I mean, well, that's the whole point. That's what you just read. That's where I stopped you exactly at the word feeling. I said stop now. Yeah, that's the word I mean, that's, vedana. I mean, that seems really that seems really confusing because yeah, okay. Okay. No, it's not. We have in English language two different uses for the word feeling. Right, yeah. We have the word sense contact, and we also have the word for emotion. Yeah. All right. Uh, in the Pali, they would have either uh, it differently too, or you could say three, they add a third. Okay. And that third one is the one, the Vedana, that the Buddha is talking about. And that is a deep sense of uh, leaning or directing the mind into being uh, either liking it or not liking it or confused about whether we like it or not. So that's either Sukha or Dukkha Vedana or it is a Sukha, a Dukkha or Stukha Dukkha. But okay. both the asuka, aduka, or the suka dukkha means that it's someplace in between. It's a mix. Mm, okay. And that third feeling is what we in English would call confusion. Mm. That we're not sure. We get confused. Okay. Okay. And um, uh, <clears throat> for instance, the child will get confused because he doesn't know the answer to the question, but really he doesn't know how to feel. Because if he knew the answer to the question, he would know how to feel. But he doesn't want to say, no, I feel bad. So he would choose to feel confused. But confusion often rots into, I don't like it, especially in the sense of the unknown for uh, like um, other people. That because we don't know them as other, we put them in the not good category. Or perhaps a better way of saying it is they put it in the possibly dangerous category. Okay. So we we actually are looking for the resolution of that feeling into I either like it or I don't like it. That's much more um, comfortable than the fear state of I don't know what it is. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. And I imagine without having to question you, but I go ahead and ask you the question, you know what it feels like to feel confused. Yeah. Yes. Okay, great. So you know what he's talking about. <laughs> Except that you probably remember confused when it was really, really big to where in fact we get confused often on a tiny little level. Mm. Depending upon the impact. If okay. it impacts you big, then you can have a big confusion, but sometimes things impact us just tiny, tiny little bit just to give us kind of a nudge in one direction or another. All right. You've also known that there have been times when you really like something. Could have been a visual image or it could have been a touch or it could have been a, just a, a, a feeling of well-being on the inside, but you liked it. Yeah. Okay, that's Veda now. That's uh, Sukha Vedana. You liked it. Yeah. And then there is the Dukkha Vedana. You don't like it. You've experienced not liking a sensation on the skin, like a mosquito bite or a cut or okay. a burn. And we don't like it. Okay. 
the sensation on the skin is just a sensation on the skin. It's the liking or not liking is why we call it pain. Mm. The word pain has the, the, the quality of not liking it built into it. Right. Okay. So now we have three kinds of feelings. We have uh, sukha, dukkha, and asukha, adukha. Okay. All right. Now, those three kinds of uh, Vedana, let's take one as an example of I like it. If I like it, I want it, is the first ignorance down the rat hole. If I like it, I want it. What happens with the guy when he sees the beautiful girl? He wants her. In other words, they say that she's painting herself up to be attractive because she wants to attract him. So there's a difference between enjoying the beauty of it and wanting it. Okay. Right? There's only two kinds of people who will go into the Metropolitan Museum in New York, pay several dollars to go and, and look at a particular painting and look at that painting wanting it. There's two kinds of people. One, money bags, and number two, thieves. <laughs> Well, guess what? The money bag was a thief. <laughs> There's just a different kind of thief than the kind that I'm talking about. They'll steal it to get money. He steals it because he's got money or he'll buy it because he's got money. Everybody else can just appreciate it as it is. It's just beautiful. But these guys, now they want it. Right. Okay. That is what we call tanha in the Pali. Mm -hmm. Wanting, craving, grasping, but not yet clinging. The clinging is the next stage of it, and the next stage of it is the clinging that instantaneously uh, the object to be clung to now requires something else. It requires something to do the clinging, and the process of coming from tanha into clinging is the bhava, and that which clings to it is the self, the jati, the birth. Okay, and now the round and around and around she goes, and we do that, and that's the dukkha. Okay. Until we wake up to that and say, aha, I see you. And now we can escape from that, and that can happen in the mind. Okay, now there's an intermediate step in there, and, th and this is where the woeful states come in. From that grasping and clinging, we are reborn in one of the woeful states. They are known as the four woeful states. Do you know them? Um, I'm not sure. I'm, I'm, I, okay. I'm, not, I'm not familiar with the term the four woeful states. The four woeful states, one of them is hell. The other one is preacher, the hungry ghost. Right. The, yeah. Uh, the third one is a dumb draft animal, and the fourth one is the Titans or the Asuras who are afraid to go into battle. Yeah. Okay. These are the woeful states that clinging and the development into the birth. That is what we're reborn. We're reborn into hell. Okay. When we get angry, we're in hell. Yeah. When we are anxious and uptight and we can't stand the situation or when we're in great despair, that's a kind of a hell. Yeah. Okay. 
that when we want something really bad, in fact, that whole first example about the guy wants the girl or the guy wants the piece of art, now he's been reborn as a hungry ghost. He can't get his can't get no satisfaction. Mm. All right. I want it. I want it. I want it. Um, <clears throat> common words for that would be lovesick. Or unrequited love. When you don't, can't get what you want. All right. Another name for it is Wall Street. <laughs> or the stock market. Because they can't nobody get what they want on Wall Street. But they think they can. Actually, there they go from A to B again, looking for something in the wrong places. They think that what they want is happiness and peace of mind and joy. And so then they think mistakenly that money will get them that for them. Right. All right. And so now we want we want money. Because we think that if we get money, we'll have joy and satisfaction and peace of mind, except that when you get a couple of million dollars, now you're afraid to lose it on Wall Street. And now, so you've got two problems. One is my own safety and security, and two is the safety and security of my water dough. Hmm. And so it's a bit dangerous to go that direction. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the same thing is true of the guy who gets the trophy wife. If he thinks she's a trophy, then others will have a trophy idea and they want her too, you see. Hmm. So that kind of thing is dangerous. And if when we can see that, that clinging and that greed of want and want, that's the hungry ghost. And you've okay. experienced that from time to time. You've experienced all of these things as we talk about it. Yeah. The third one on the list is remarkable in the sense that this is the one that's the most common, and yet in Buddhism, it's the one that's least understood. Okay. And that is the hungry, uh, not the hungry ghost, it is the, the animal, the animal world. Okay, what the Buddha was referring to was draft animals, the donkey that is having to pull in a circle a great big log that, that uh, has a millstone on it. Right. So that the so that the farmer standing aside of the road puts this uh, his um, sugarcane in there, and out comes sugarcane juice, and he pay and he sells that for ten rupees. But the donkey don't get no sugarcane juice. No, <laughs> he don't get none. He just has to turn that thing around. Well, we live our lives like that, in the sense that we started about the first grade when we're put to work. We're said we're told to sit down and learn your ABCs, your one two threes. And the kid says, why? And the mom says, well, if you pass the first grade, you could get into the second grade. Why? Well, if you get into the second grade, you can get into the third grade and you get out of primary school into middle school. Why? Okay, where's the end of all of that? Mm. So if you get a, if you get your uh, degrees out of the university, then you can get a job. Why? Yeah. What's the point? The point is, is the way that our society is set up is that we never get the benefit. We never feel comfortable and happy and relaxed and satisfied. It's always more work to do and more work to do. And until the rewards become, are suppose, pitiful. Yeah, until you become Pardon? too old, until you become too old to do anything. And then you're kind of like still waiting for that uh, reward. And then 
then you're too old and mm-hmm. seen as not really uh, worth anything disposable at that point. So <laughs> Right. Well, it depends upon how soon, and some people never do have a midlife crisis. Some mm-hmm. of us happen in the 20s. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that's the whole point is the midlife crisis is when someone finally wakes up to the fact that he's been robbed. He's been lied to. He has been perked to work like a draft animal for the past X number of years, and he didn't get nothing out of it. Yeah. Because we're always continuously being dissatisfied. That's what our culture wants us to do. The culture wants us, if there is a culture that wants things, I mean, the way that it's systemically set up is for people to be continuously dissatisfied. Well, and it also makes you I sort of identify with this uh, image. I, I know for myself that a lot of times I've thought, well, I, I've i done this and this and this, and, and this is what gives me worth as a person, not realizing that, like, it's it's very temporary, and it's, and it's all, it, it can all be taken away at any moment, and it's not, it's not really what you are at all those things that you've done that have built up a resume and, you know, but you spend mm-hmm. so much time building, building, building something that's totally imaginary. Right. And all you've really been doing is just following orders, do what you were told to do. Yeah. Mm-hmm. By people who heard it someplace else. And yeah. they are doing out there what they were told to do. Yeah. And the people they heard it from, Heard it from someplace else, and it's just been folklore or passed down that you're that if you don't work, you don't eat. Yeah, and that's not true at all. In fact, uh, uh, the past several months, the people in the U.S. have been quitting their jobs by the millions because yeah. they're beginning to figure out that that's not true. They you don't have to work for a living. Yeah, living is wonderful when you don't have to work. In fact, let's stop work altogether and just start playing with our lives, which is what the Buddha is really talking about here. But what we get done, what happens is we get stuck into these um, woeful states, especially this draft animal of going along to get along and, and believing the lies that we've been told, like dumb animals do. Can you just hold on a second? I I think there's a package really quick. (laughs) Sorry, I'm sorry. Sorry, there's me being a donkey and having to <laughs> do my societal role of answering the door. <laughs> I was wondering if you would figure that out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, were you the hungry ghost or were you the dumb animal? <laughs> uh, I think I was the animal. <laughs> All right, so you're already getting some benefit out of this conversation, actually. <laughs> <laughs> so, moving right along, the fourth one then is what is called the assurance, which has a direct correlation with the titans in in the Greek language. And these are the lesser gods that are the warriors who are all dressed up for battle with no place to go. Or they're afraid to go. 
This is basically the, the state of fear that we get ourselves into based upon territory and things like this. Now, it's quite interesting. These um, uh, let me give you a couple of examples of it. Uh, the child who walks out on stage that has one line to say in the play, and that is, I am a tree. And there he is dressed up as a tree and he walks out on stage and he has stage fright and he forgets his line. All right, that that whole idea of stage fright or being afraid of an audience or being afraid of, of being caught or things like that, and we freeze. Or we uh, we go uh, into fear needlessly on all kinds of occasions because we're dressed for battle. So we think that there's a battle, and so we're trying to avoid the battles out there, and so we wind up being afraid a lot. Okay. Now, there's something very interesting about this, and that is that um, we have identified with Western uh, science, we have understood about the four primary instincts. The self-preservation instinct is the bottom line, and that's the ones associated with fear. And then we have the procreation instinct, which has to do with materialism, which is corresponding to the hungry ghost. And then we have the nesting or the herding instinct, which goes along with being an animal of going along to doing, uh, going along to get along, do what you're told to do because you're in this nest. If you leave the nest, it's going to be dangerous out there. And, and after all, you are a titan or an assurer and you're afraid to go out on your own. So you got to stay in the nest. But if you do, you got to do what you're told to do. So you can see how these instincts work together. And then the last one is the territorial instinct of what is our territory in the sense of things outside of our territory are unknown, foreign, not us. And this gives rise to um, one thing is tribalism and racism. And then on another level, it gives us identity in the sense of uh, I am this, not that. I'm a, I'm a Democrat, not a Republican, or I'm a a Jew, not a Gentile, or I am a uh, Roman soldier, not a Greek soldier, or I am a Catholic, not a Protestant, or I'm a Canadian, not a Mexican. The, that separation all have to do a lot with territory, but it, it's also that territorial instinct has to do then with these four woeful states. And that there's almost a direct correlation to the point that our identity and uh, the, what the Buddha is talking about in the sense of um, attachment to views is very much the, ter the, uh, the, the territorial instinct. Okay. And also the, uh, the animal state, the woeful state of being an animal or going along to getting along, or what he also refers to as Sivabhata Paramasa, of all the laws, rules, regulations that we store in here about how to get along. So this is very instinctual. It's very interesting to note that this that really a very easy way to understand the teaching of the Buddha is, is that if we live our lives intellectually investigating and acting wisely, then that means that we are not following our instincts. We're not following our heart anymore. We're not living by intuition. We're living by wisdom. 
because it's our instincts that are on automatic pilot that almost always wind us up in the gutter. Okay. It is almost like a Tesla and our AI driving system hasn't been quite worked out for the streets that we're on now. But it worked fine when we were on dirt roads way back when. But yeah, our mapping system is not good for, for modern highways. We need to actually watch what we're doing and watch where we're going to live a modern life happily mm -hmm. by doing it wisely. Which And the question then, or where is the right place to put our wisdom, is at that point of contact so that we wisely have control over the way that we feel. Because if we uh, if we can wisely control the way that our, we feel, then we can say, fine, I like it, but I don't want it. Right. Or fine, I don't like it, but I'm not going to try to fix it. Just because that cat's injured out there in the wild and I can't trap it in my trap doesn't mean that I've got to go feel bad about that cat. I could say that cat, I mean, I don't like that that cat's out there, but I can't do anything about it. Right. Right. So we can right. accept that. I, I don't like it, but I'm not going to do anything about it. Mm -hmm. Or the third one is, is that, oh, I'm confused. Let me do more investigation. Okay. Rather than assume something. Because normally we assume that I don't like it. That's why we have tribalism is because I don't know who that guy is. Therefore, he may be dangerous and therefore he's the wrong color. And you know how that trip goes. That's a big rat hole. <laughs> So, um, the way that we're talking about this phrase, starting from that word feeling, that's the word Vedana. From yep. Vedana, it goes to Tanha. From Tanha, it goes to Upadana. From Upadana, it goes to Bhava. From Bhava to Jati, and from Jati to Dukkha. Right? Okay. So, the first thing that happens is pasa. From pasa, it goes to vedana. I like it. The vedana, okay, so I like it. Oh, I like it. And now I got to go get it. This is the tanha, wanting okay. it. And okay. then the grasping it is the uh, uh, upadana. But in order to do the grasping while that's happening, we have the bhava of the self attaching to the object and that's the self and now that that has happened around and around the samsara wheel of dukkha goes okay this is the process that the buddha is talking about there but he's doing it in the language is number one a foreign language to us anyway and even with the concepts are very ancient you couple that with bad translations and it makes it very confusing. But the way that I've described it to you is easy peasy. <laughs> yeah, that makes a lot of sense. It's so I mean, I, I've always been confused with like dependent origination. And I think that, yeah, it makes it a lot more clear than any other explanation that I've ever received. So I appreciate that. <laughs> well, it's right there in the suttas, but also um, this is according to Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa. That in fact, I have snuck some of his particular teachings in there, like wisdom at the point of contact. Yeah. That that's how we cure this thing. Is if I you think have that's really I think that's really important because I, I know a lot of times uh, I've been told, oh, follow your heart or follow your instincts. That's sort of a common phrase, you know. Right, right into the side of the mountain. Sure, just go right ahead. Don't watch yeah. where you're going. 
<laughs> Follow your heart. <laughs> Well, the whole idea is, is that if you don't follow your heart, you'll be miserable. Because that means that you've got two choices, either to follow your heart or do what you're told to do. If you go by doing what you're told to do instead of what you want to do, you see, so that's the dichotomy. Mm -hmm. But both of them are wrong. Right. The right way to do it is to look at what you're doing. To recognize where this stuff comes from and to recognize what that stuff comes from and say, never mind, I don't need either one of them. <laughs> I don't have to follow my heart and I don't have to do what I'm told to do. I can do things wisely a third way. Okay. So that's the way that uh, we have to recognize it, that we have both of those issues that we have to work with. Because guess what? Both of them are instinctual. Both of them have to do with the way that we manage our feelings, but always the feelings are in service of the self-preservation instinct, the selfishness that's within. Because this is the feeling that's associated with that is that feeling of fear. But that's the bottom line feeling. Why? Because that's the feeling that keeps us alive. Hmm. It keeps us surviving which means that when we feel fear, that separates us from that which we find dangerous. That's the duality is based in fear. When there is no fear, then we can have unity. But when there is fear, that's where the separation comes from. And the separation comes within us because of the self-preservation instinct. It's an instinct built into it, okay? And as long as we let that instinct operate all on its own, it will have a whole lot of false positives. So that fear will come up when in fact there's no reason to have fear at all. Mm. There's also the connection between the mind and the feelings in the sense that we can, um, many, many examples. When you get somebody really angry, he can't think straight. When you got somebody who really, really wants something very badly, they can't think about anything else but that. Right. So um, the way that we feel controls the kind of thinking that we have, but also the thinking that we have controls our feelings. These things are interrelated. And um, uh, it, it kind of in a, in a circular feedback loop. So if you uh, have a thought that gives anxiety or if someone has a thought that gives anxiety and then they see the anxiety and they don't like the anxiety and then they'll have thoughts of trying to get rid of the anxiety which creates more anxiety and it becomes a loop okay i'm really uptight and i don't want to be uptight and that keeps me in tight because i don't want to be uptight right the easy thing to do is just to forget about it and relax and right. it's the forgetting about it that's the important thing is let's change the subject. Let's get the mind off of uh, whatever we have as feelings and think about something else that we really can control the way that we feel if we put the right process involved to give us the right kind of contact. Right. Okay. So when the mind is thinking thoughts, those thoughts contact or set off the um, uh, the penal and the pituitary glands that are connected directly to the adrenaline gland and all that stuff goes right into the bloodstream, right? 
So um, knowing that, we can begin to figure out that, oh, the way that I feel now is kind of the sum total of the way that I have been feeling my whole life, and I felt the way that I did because I talked myself into it. That we literally talk ourselves into feeling bad our whole lives. Now it's time to start talking ourselves into feeling good. Let's start having some wholesome thoughts. Right. Let's, let's start having some thoughts that are going to... Um, impact our feeling system such that we're going to start feeling really good so we have start to have thoughts of safety thoughts of security and then we'll feel safe and secure instead of freaked out and afraid and anxious and uptight so that we can actually create uh, our own environment of happy thoughts so that we can bring on a state of happiness. We can feel comfortable because we have comfortable thoughts. Oh, this is such a nice chair. Thank you, Mr. Chair. You really do a good job here. I really appreciate you. Yeah, make things really comfortable. Okay, <laughs> so these are the kind of thoughts that we would have. Gratitude, uh, thoughts of generosity, thoughts of well-being. And with that, we also been, begin to develop uh, thoughts and feelings of satisfaction like everything's okay everything is fine everything is all right okay now when we're actually doing that we are interrupting that whole process so that the particular samapata is not fulfilled that we cut it off we break it and at this point in time what we're talking about is we're breaking it there at that feeling level because we can control the way that we feel. We can talk ourselves into feeling that way. In fact, we're, we're doing it wisely. We're having wise feelings. Mm. And so at this point in time, we're actually breaking that cycle. And we're breaking it at this point. Now, the, uh, with the higher development, we can break it even earlier. But at least we've cut the, the whole uh, the snake in half. <laughs> By being able to uh, practice anapanasati by gladdening the mind and changing the thoughts that we have. So this is that, in fact, the first part of the sutta is what I'm talking about now in the sense that starting with the whole concept that that fire must have a fuel to burn. Right. Okay, what fire do you know of that does that burns without any fuel at all? This was the question that the Buddha was asking everybody, and everybody agreed that they don't know of a fire. Well, that answers a whole bunch of questions, because in fact, what we're talking about here is we're talking about the general understanding of engineering, or the general understanding of energy, or the general understanding of what's possible and not possible. It's not possible for a fire to have happened without a fuel. Okay. And it's also then not possible for consciousness to happen without a fuel. And the fuel for consciousness is just like the fuel for a fire. The fire is known by its fuel. Consciousness is also known by its fuel in the sense of the eye consciousness, the hearing consciousness, the touch, taste. This is sense consciousness. But there is another kind of consciousness, and that is what we would call this stuff after it's being processed. How is it processed? It's processed with nama rupa, 
which then gives rise to the salyatana, and it's the salyatana that is, in fact, the other kind of consciousness. The way that we do this in English is that I see the tree, or I say, I see what you mean. When I say, I see what you mean, that's salyatana. When I say, I see a tree, we're talking about this kind of consciousness with the eye. Okay. Okay. So when I say, I see what you mean, that means that I have brought a bunch of past stuff into it. If I bring it in ignorantly, then I will bring in uh, old bad feelings coming from instincts. But if I bring it in wisely, then the kind of thoughts that I can have will be different than the kind of thoughts that I would have if I were doing it ignorantly. So I see something out there. Wisely, I can decide what I'm going to do with it rather than just automatically doing it ignorantly. So, in fact, ignorance is at, at every level of the occasion here, and what, what, uh, that's why it's also the foundation. It's the foundation of everything. And, and uh, what we do is we begin to dispel that ignorance, and one of the first ways of doing it is dispelling it in the sense of becoming familiar with the way that you feel. So that you can, you can feel first and then wisely decide to act rather than automatically acting upon the feelings. Like if I like something, I ignorantly want it. But if I wisely see that feeling, then I can stop it. I don't have to want it. Right. But if I want it and want it and want it, I've got to stop it and stop it and stop it. If I can back that process up to the point that I don't want it anymore, then I have to. Then I don't have to say I want it, I want it, I want it. And every time I have to stop it, no, you don't, no, you don't, you can't get it, you don't have it. <laughs> And so uh, there's even more peace of mind. But the, the, the important thing there is, is that normally in this process along the line, someone stops because we wake up. An argument, for instance, will go along just so long until either a third party or one of the people will break it up. If they don't break it up, someone is going to get hurt. And if we don't break it up, then somebody's going to die. An argument always is a violent act. It only depends upon how sharp is our dagger. Is our dagger words or their daggers real? Okay, but other than that, uh, how far into the argument do we go? If we if we don't argue much, in other words, as the argument starts, we say, oh, I don't care about it. Then our life is easy again immediately, rather than going into an argument and getting deeper into it and deeper into it and digging it deeper into Patita Samupada until there could be really severe dukkha. So this is how things cycle and cycle and cycle to go downhill with it, but always the process is with the Patita Samapada. This leads to that and things circle and go down this way. So that's what that teaching there is about. And all of the Westerns get hung up on what do those words mean, like Baba and Jati, where really what they're talking about is, is the process of once we want that and we start clinging to it, that drive is the beginning of the self, and the self attaching to it is now the full-blown me. It is okay. me now that is angrier. It's me now that that uh, uh, is involved with that. And when that self is in it, that's where the dukkha arises. 
you could go so far as to say that the, the self is the is uh, is only use and only existence is a bucket to carry dukkha. That's what the self is for. And you can see out instinctually of how the self operates in the sense of the self-preserve instinct gives us fear, which means now we must take some action. Fear is the rally cry within one's mind-body complex. You got to do something. That's why the child feels afraid and then does something. Until mommy can make the kid afraid, he's not going to do anything. So if mom really is insistent on the kid doing something, she's got to make him afraid. The carrot wasn't enough. Out comes the stick. <laughs> so when we recognizing that um, that is a natural motivator, that means that when you become unafraid of things, you don't have much motivation anymore because most of the things that motivate us were motivated out of fear so don't be afraid yeah. and then you don't yeah. have anything to do and you can just sit here and say oh no place to go and nothing to do just relax and everything is cool yeah i i think i've i've experienced this a little bit and one thing that happens is i my mind kicks in and gets a little bit concerned because it's like you, you don't enjoy the things you used to enjoy or you don't. Uh, yeah, like just as I practice, I, I tend to get into this thing of uh, thinking. How am I going to function in society when I when I've just completely lost motivation because I see that it doesn't really lead anywhere and it's not. The answer to that is brilliantly. OK. <laughs> And not only brilliantly, but flawlessly, and not just flawlessly, but because it's flawless because you don't actually ever do anything. That everything becomes a toy, a joy. You do what you want to do, not because it has to be done. Mm. Don't do anything important ever again. Stop with importance. Things are not important. You've been lied to. Here's an easy, clear example, and it happens. I've seen it actually happen in Thailand. This is an actual event. The, the little girl has been playing with Barbie dolls, but they were the uh, rip-off fake kind that you get in Asia very easy. And she's really into these Barbie dolls. And she takes the dresses off and she pulls the heads off and changes and all kinds of things and arms and legs and everything go here and there. And her aunt knows how much she enjoys these Barbie dolls. And so she buys her one of the very stiff ones, one of the expensive, real, not a knockoff, a real Barbie doll cost for $60. And the aunt brings it to give to the little girl and she's overjoyed. And the first thing she does is starts pulling the arms and the legs off of it. Because she knows how to play with the doll. The aunt freaks out. What are you doing? That doll costs $60. See, the aunt thought it was important. The child thought it was a toy. Which was it? Was it a $60 important doll or was it a child's toy? Mm. The answer is, which mind are you talking about? To one, it was one. To the other, it was, now, which would you rather have? Would you rather have a child's toy to play with or do you want an expensive Barbie doll? 
Yeah, I'd rather have the child's toy. <sighs> now you're getting where the Dama is. This is, we get out of that whole mentality, the Western mentality. Oh, I want a really expensive, Rhea top-notch quality Barbie doll. It's not supposed to be played with. You can't take that apart. It's too important. <laughs> So that should be your job now. Your job's not important anymore. Now you can play with it. It's just a toy. But to get that mentality that is uh, that it's a toy, you have to sit down with your and practice. This is what Anapanasati practice is all about: is to learn that all of these features and tools that you have, the the human body is a marvelous toy to play with. And here we thought that it was a job to do, a machine, a tool. When nothing, no, the human body is just a toy. You've got one person there. So the first thing to do is to play with it. Check it out. Pull the head off. <laughs> you know, this gets into one thing that you mentioned last time as well, that you had said that the when you're noticing the breath, that the throat area is often connected to this fear instinct. And I, and I tended to notice when I've been noticing it that I do have a tightness quite often in my throat area that like, it's something I, I didn't really notice until you pointed out that, you know, to try to pay attention to it. And I was like, man, there's a lot of the percentage of the day that I have a like this in my throat. Um, but yeah. I, Okay, here's a question for you. Uh, you know that male lions have manes, mm -hmm. big hair jobs. What's the purpose of the mane? Uh, Is it, in fact, a survival mechanism? I'm sorry, what did you say? Is it, in fact, a survival mechanism? Uh... No, I don't think so. It's to impress the women, right? Isn't that the like the thing of it? Or I don't know. Well, let us say this. When a lion attacks a standing uh, four-legged big creature like a gazelle or a, a wildebeest or whatever, he, he jumps on the back. But what's the actual takedown? What's the kill? What's the kill? Uh, I mean, he's biting into it. To the jugular, right into the throat. Yeah. Okay. So if two male lions are fighting over who's going to be the head of the pride, the one who's got the thickest hair is going to be well protected against the other guy. So maybe mm. it's not who bites the hardest, it's who's got the most hair. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So... There you go. Now you're talking about why does the throat tense up? Why do we have all of this protective mechanism? And in fact, the other ask, question to ask is what's the weakest part of the body? Yeah, it's definitely there. Yeah, exactly. This is why we tense up in our throats. It's good awareness for you. You're not alone with that, but you're lucky that you figured it out. Okay. <laughs> So start watching for that. Yes, become aware of what the body is doing. That's excellent. This is what the Anapanasati is all about. This is most specifically stage three of Anapanasati is getting to know this body. 
Yeah. That's why I call it a toy. It's a toy to play with. Get to learn it. Notice it. Play with it. Check it out. And we do that with the mind in the sense that this is why we work with Sati to have the long, deep in-breath is because that starts to train us in paying attention to the body to be here now rather than lost in space or last year or over yonder or with them, that kind of stuff. But no, we're, we're here now. Paying attention to the breathing, paying attention to the neck and paying attention to what the body is doing. And... Paying attention to the fact that, hey, man, we're so relaxed. Mm. Everything is just easy peasy. Just sitting and no place to go. Because I'm not afraid. And if I'm not afraid, I got no motivations. So this is the whole style that uh, we can change to in the sense that we deal with society the way that we were taught to deal with society, which basically means that we have a whole lot of instructions that we tell ourselves, and then we feel bad about them. We either be afraid and we go do it, or we feel guilty because we don't want to do it, and, or we feel rebellious or whatever like that, when it's just a bunch of collection of mental rules that we've made up, or we've heard someplace else. Mostly, they've made, they've, they've, I mean, there have been so many rules for so long, it's hard to find someone making up a new rule. They generally, they've already been made up and passed down. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so, um, getting out of that system of automatic pilots in the sense of operating by instincts or operating by a set of rules. And those are the two ways that we normally do it. As opposed to the third way is operating wisely. Waking up, paying attention, notice what's going on. Okay. And that's what that teaching about Patita Samuppada is all about. So the next time we talk, we can talk about earlier parts of Patita Samuppada. But when you're reading that sutta, make sure that you understand that the Buddha is talking about the way that the mind works in a way that we can understand it, even though it's in really, really religious language. Because that's who translated it. Right. Right. And so... Um, there's one thing that I can tell you, and that is on Sutta Central. If you go to Sujato's translations, you can mix the poly with yeah. the, uh, and and with that, you can actually then start looking at these words and and looking at yeah. the kind of structure yeah, and recognizing. Yeah, I played with that a little bit, and and it's it's quite interesting doing it because sometimes the, you know, it takes quite a lot of like English words to translate something that is. Uh, like one phrase in uh, Pali, and then and then the phrase has like it has a prefix or a suffix that is just replaced by something else for the next one, and it's really interesting because it gives you a totally different feeling when it's just like this, and when you realize that oh, this one is related to the previous one this way because it has the same suffix, and it's quite interesting. Excellent. Yes, in fact, you can see that in a way, much of the sutras are poetry. 
Mm, yeah, with definitely. symmetry and repetition over and over and over again. But the English translators, to make the book shorter, will lift out stuff that's repeated over and over again. In fact, if you look at the Pali, uh, they in that particular suit on that website, they do have all the Pali, but he doesn't bother translating, but about half of it. Right. He puts dot, dot, and, dot. <laughs> no, no, no. It's the poly. I mean, yeah, if you oh. see the English only, but if you look at the poly, it means it's got his translation poly, translation poly, translation poly, 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 translation poly. Okay. And so he's left out a whole section of the translation in English and that's all the poly that's in there. Okay. Which means that if you're not looking at the poly, you miss out on the fact that things are repeated in a certain way that makes it slightly a little differently on this and that aspect or just the repetition of it has the quality of just grinding this stuff in but yeah. that's the part that reading the books is missing yeah okay that makes sense and it, it's kind of like talking just, to you and then you repeating the same thing over and over and over again <laughs> and and each time you hear it you're like oh yeah that's right oh yeah yeah oh yeah, yeah. that's it <laughs> That's what it is. The Buddha Dhamma is very small. There's not much to it, but it's only valuable when you keep doing it over and over and over again. And very much of that, I like this practice just like Anapanasati, in the sense that it's like breathing. The Dhamma is as easy as breathing, but you got to keep doing it. You can't yeah. just stop breathing because it became easy. And so I've had enough breath. I'm just going to quit now. <laughs> No, it needs to be repeated over and over and over and over and over again. Why? Because you spent all these years having thoughts of unwholesome. Now it's time to balance that out and to start having one wholesome thought after another after another. Okay. And, and so it's very repetitive. The suttas are repetitive. I'm repetitive. It all is just going. I mean, your whole life is repetitive. If you stand back from it, you'll recognize that. Now you're just yeah. spinning in a different kind of circle. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Okay, Joe, well, let's finish up now. This has been okay. a delightful little conversation and yeah. uh, continue on with your practice and go get another sutta. Really test me, see what we can do here. <laughs> okay. All right. <laughs> Thank you very much. Have All a nice right. Day. Okay. Bye. Bye bye.